Escape to Ocean City, Maryland, and discover a place that just feels lighter, where every day feels like Saturday and french fries are a food group, where flip-flops are always in fashion and seafood is always in season, where the boardwalk is bustling and the beach is right outside your door, where you can rise with the tide and feel like a kid again. Ocean City, Maryland, somewhere to smile about. Book your trip at Oceocean.com. And we're back with an all-new Keep It. <laughs> Keep It we, fully quarantined. F- we are fully. fully home now. I am Ira Madison III. I'm Louis Fertel. And God, do, do I so resent having to film myself in my own apartment, you guys. Now, <laughs> it, what you're seeing on camera, it looks like an interview from Citizen Four. I look like uh, Edward Snowden hiding out. Louis, <laughs> ho- hold up the newspaper with today's date so we know that you're still alive. <laughs> and blink twice, please, <laughs> while looking directly into the camera. And I'm Aida Osman. I'm also at home and losing my damn mind. So I, I'm so happy we have this still to see each other and talk and talk shit. Whew. Unfortunately, this is just a self-indulgent exercise for me. Like I'm now, I'm such an extrovert that if I don't hear myself talk, I don't exist. So yeah. unfortunately, this is just me surviving. I'm Tr- just self-actualizing on Keep It. Truly, it has been an exercise in what an extrovert will do in a situation like this. Even going live on Instagram is something I can't do anymore because now everyone's doing it. Um, yes. And, and also, Lewis had a really good tweet about who should and should not be going on live. If you're about to go live on Instagram or Facebook, think to yourself, am I 30 Rock? Because that's the level you need to be at. Yeah, that is the <laughs> joke, jokes per minute. The entertainment per second value needs to be quite high. But yeah, you're right, uh, Ira. Everyone is on live. It's like watching TV. You can literally go to different channels of everyone's bullshit. I locked into a friend's live and they were doing a talk show from their living room and I was the only person <laughs> watching it. And that was the darkest thing I've seen all week. <laughs> there's no, nothing grimmer than when you sign onto somebody's Instagram and it's a live video and there's four people in the room and you're right with them. Because then they could see that you've joined and they're like, hey, and then you feel so awkward for leaving. And you feel obligated to stay. And then also the way it functions on Instagram is it pops up as a banner on top, which is where I press a lot. So you I keep accidentally click accidentally in. entering. And then I have to leave. Shut up, Aida joined and shut up, Aida left in one second. <laughs> it's terrorism. It's rude. Now is the time when I would ask everyone what culture they've been consuming this week. But we're mm. going to have to keep it condensed <laughs> because we're doing nothing but watching things. Keep it quiet. Yeah, okay, I'll go, I'll go fast. I'm going through a Greta Gerwig haul. So Ooh. I watched Lady Bird. I watched Francis mm-hmm. Ha for the first time. And... Uh, yeah, just a lot of quirky, a lot of witty, a lot of quirky, a lot of it t- took me back to college and like caring a lot about. Have you guys seen Francis Ha? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Francis Ha uh, does what it has to do. Does what it has to do. Playing Animal Crossing on my Switch. Very relaxing. Very just escapist. Sweet escapism. I just downloaded Animal Crossing last night, so yes, I will boo. send you my Switch code. Please do. Let's link up. I want to see your city. Yes. Um, come to my town. <laughs> that's it. That's all I'm doing. Trying to stay sane, listening to Prince, dancing naked in my apartment. Like, what else can we do? I've been listening to a lot of Beach Boys. I've been yeah. listening to Shut Down Volume 2, which may be my favorite album of theirs. You need happy sweet bops. You need light bops right now. Mm-hmm. 
my favorite Beach Boys song is not a light pop. It's on Pet Sounds and it's called I Just Wasn't Made for These Times, which also was recorded once by Aww. Amy Mann and Michael Penn. I recommend it. I, by the way, I just saw, I'll, I'll segue right into what I'm watching. I just watched The Squid and the Whale for the first time this week. Mm. No, I had no idea what it was about. Now I understand why we tried so hard with Jesse Eisenberg. Like, oh, I we get did. it. We did. We did. We really did. I tried to watch American Ultra and just had to tap out real quick. It's no, it's not happening. His chemistry with Kristen Stewart is abysmal in American Ultra and in um, what's their other movie? Adventureland. Yeah. Yes, Adventureland. I kept thinking Zombieland, uh, but he's in that too. Uh, <laughs> but yeah. at the time in, in Squid and the Whale, which is by the way a, a taut movie, it's got to be eighty minutes long altogether or something. It's mm-hmm. a divorce drama, and uh, it's about Jeff Daniels, who's great, Laura Linney, who's obviously great. Jesse Eisenberg in that movie, he's like prestige, the adventures of Pete and Pete. Um, it's that weird, disconnected <laughs> vibe that really reminds me of the adventures of Pete and Pete, but he's so, so watchable and also actually looks like the older Pete in that movie, whose name mm. is Michael Morona, by the way. Shout out to mm. him. A bombback movie about divorce? I'm shocked. <laughs> <laughs> right. It's shocking. Um, but God, I've been watching so much Amazon Prime recently. I recently rewatched um, His Girl Friday with uh, Cary Grant and Roz Russell. Russell. Yes. And uh, I, myself, putting together this audio equipment at home, it was like a screwball comedy. The amount of- <laughs> <laughs> Just the microphone slipping out of your hands. Yeah. Everything falling to the ground. Cary Grant in too many chords. Yes. It feels like the end of Bringing Up Baby. Just yes. dinosaur bones falling everywhere. <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, if this audio doesn't come together, it's because I was sitting around bobbling like a, a, a 30 screen star. I apologize. <laughs> what are you watching, Ira? So I have been watching Dynasty season three. I okay. remember that I bought a season pass at one point and I've just been catching up and it is veering between entertaining and I love it and veering into what the fuck am I watching? <laughs> The the worst parts of it are actually the parts where they try to recreate classic scenes. I got to their recreation of the the champagne is burnt scene, and mm-hmm. I wanted to hurl my plant at the TV. No, correct me if I'm wrong. On the new Dynasty, Elaine Hendricks is on it, right? Yes, of the Parent Trap fame, and I just yes. like I just like actors. There was a big heyday for actresses like that who are kind of like cat eyed and mean looking, mm-hmm. and, but she's so funny, and I love her mm-hmm. on Twitter too. She is the third. Alexis Carrington. I didn't realize we had a second very well. Well, Nicolette Sheridan was the first one, oh, and God. then she was shoved into a fireplace by her son, Adam, and he got her plastic surgery at the hospital to look just like her daughter, who's played by Liz Giles, and um, Liz played both roles for two episodes before Alexis left. The original Instagram face. <laughs> right there there are moments like that where i'm like this show is brilliant and dumb but i've also started tiger king because oh, every, me too. because every text thread that i'm in won't shut up about it how did it go for you lewis you're gonna have to defend your race in about five seconds <laughs> I, I tried to watch tiger king and i was like there's no way there's no way i can finish this you know what? This is, I won't even ask Lewis to defend that because this is a special brand of white people. <laughs> it is Florida white people. And oh no one no gosh. one should be asked to explain Florida ever. Oh, I say we should establish, by the way, that Tiger King is about people in the South who 
have this they oh, collect yeah. all these big cats obsessively there's yes. like hundreds of tigers on these premises and anyway it's about how one guy is hired a hit on this other woman who's trying to shut down his business so it's just this insane pulpy story and so far it feels like it is earning all seven episodes i'm mm-hmm. not yeah. done yet but i will largely say the problem with the current modern documentaries in this binging era is they're too long like we talked about mcmillions i was like it kept spinning its wheels for no reason Mm -hmm. but this i mean netflix seems to know what they're doing with documentaries so this is giving me what i need so far and it's less like courtroom footage like uh making a murderer so i feel like i'm not just watching cable access from 1997 or whatever that was so Mm -hmm. also lastly they look like christopher guest characters of course but every character on the show when they show a old photo of them from like the 80s most of them look hot and i think (laughs) florida is where hot people go to turn ugly (laughs) it's a beautiful sound something is literally in the water there yeah in the florida water uh we have a exciting (laughs) show for you all today which is a shock because we are we're we're locked down in our homes, and this is the one time we get one of our most exciting guests, Lewis. Our guest this week, guys, is Jane fucking Fonda. Oh gosh, Jane the red. Fonda. <laughs> <laughs> I, I mean, it's crazy that we couldn't be in person with her, but it just I can't believe it. And also, you know what else I can't believe? Jane and I, as of two weeks ago, have a past together now that we'll get into very quickly during our interview. Unfortunately, when they talk about their past and prior relationship, it doesn't lead to revelations about um, evil twins and um, (laughs) brain transplants. It sounds much more mysterious than it turns out to be. But it is a a good uh, bit of trivia. It's also the most Lewis story you will ever hear. The most Lewis story. It's truly Lewis (laughs) all over the walls. When I got the call to uh, uh, work with Jane on this thing that we'll talk about momentarily... Mm -hmm. I truly thought this is like if four-year-old me came up with how I would hang out with Jane Fonda. So just it involves TV. It involves the world of game shows, which is insane. So just be, be ready. It is unbelievable. Vertelian. Vertelian is the new word I'm using for things that intersect. Vertelian. Yes. Vertelian. Yes. Very Vertelian. The day that I visited the Days of Our Lives set, I would describe as perfectly Vertelian. There you are. Yes. <laughs> Then after Jane, we're going to dive into an exciting new segment we're calling Keep It Civil, where we invited some of you to send in voice memos about the problems you're running into cohabitating under this quarantine. And finally, we'll be joined by playwright Jeremy O'Harris, who is currently on lockdown in London town. We'll be right back. At this point, all of us are feeling the impact of the coronavirus pandemic in our everyday lives, but there are some people and communities who are more vulnerable and need extra support. Help those who need it most, plus the groups working to meet this moment head-on through Crooked's Coronavirus Relief Fund. Visit crooked.com slash coronavirus. All right, up next, Jane Fonda. We are so excited. I'm sure Lewis is actually more excited than any of us could ever be. Uh, We are joined by activist, actress, and legend Jane Fonda. 
Hello, Miss Fonda. It's so nice to meet you over Zoom. Hello. Hi, Lewis. Lewis oh, hi, and, I, and I, I have to say, full disclosure, we've had a prior relationship. Yes. We were a team on Who Wants to Be a Millionaire. Which is, I can't believe my life, but yes, it is a, a version of Celebrity Who Wants to Be a Millionaire hosted by my boss, Jimmy Kimmel. And I got to be a sort of trivia guardian angel for Jane as she it moved was her way fabulous. up the chain. It's such a wonderful convergence of both things that make Lewis happy. It's wonderful to see. <laughs> it's, it's literally like, yeah, uh, amazing actresses and trivia. <laughs> I can't wait to watch it. I'm so excited to have you here because I remember first becoming aware of you in high school when we watched The China Syndrome in a class of mine. And I love how you've been able to meld making films with issues that you care about. And I would love for you to tell us how you've balanced making art, making it important, and making things people want to see. Well, um, I became an activist um, in the late 60s, early 70s, and up until then, the movies that I'd been offered were not, they weren't consistent with how I was feeling as a person, as an activist, and so I was seriously considering leaving the business and becoming a full-time activist, and I had a friend in Detroit who was the head of the Revolutionary League of Black Lawyers, Ken Cockrell was his name, and he said to me, listen, Fonda, organizers are a dime a dozen, something like that. But we got plenty of organizers. We don't have movie stars. The movement needs movie stars. It gives you a great platform. And so not only should you continue in your career, but you should commit yourself even more to doing the kind of movies that you want to do. And that that was when I decided that I was going to start producing movies that reflected issues that I thought were important. You know, the one thing I learned is that if you want to do a movie that's about something, you have to decide what's the style that it needs to be dressed in. For example, the very first movie that I, you know, that was kind of my idea was Coming Home. That was a sexy love story. So that even if you didn't care about the well-being of Vietnam veterans, you could like the movie because it was sexy. China Syndrome was a thriller, and a lot of people saw it who, you know, didn't give a fuzzy rat's ass about nuclear energy, but it was a good thriller. Nine to Five, of course, was a comedy. So there was, I can't remember who said, if you, you know, if you want to talk about issues, send a telegram. You have to make it a good movie in some art form, and you, you know what I'm saying. Oh, of course. I think one of my favorite things about um, Fire Drill Fridays, which are now, of course, iconic not just because of the awareness you bring to the situation but also you being an icon just like the way you appear at these arrests is just unforgettable there's nothing like it talk about how did this idea come to be i mean it must i can picture a meeting with you where you're figuring out how can we combine classic protest with something that people will actually remember last labor day i was very well i'd spent about a year quite depressed because even though as an individual i'd done Everything I could, I, I, I drive an electric car, I've, we're getting rid of single-use plastic, I recycle, blah, blah, blah. But I know that no matter what we do as individuals, it can't be scaled up in time to really matter. And right about then, I read a book by Naomi Klein called On Fire, The Burning Issue of a Green New Deal. And it did set me on fire, and I decided that I wanted to do what Greta Thunberg did in the sense of this is an emergency, so you have to put your body on the line. So 
I called my friend Annie Leonard, who who is the director of Greenpeace USA. I said I want to move to D.C. and do a, a an action, and that became Fire Drill Fridays. And you know, here I was about to turn 82, and I thought if I can be arrested every week. I think it will help people engage in civil disobedience. People will realize that this 82-year-old woman is going to do this. Maybe it's something I should pay attention to because we know that there's millions of people in this country that are concerned, but they don't know what to do. And so I wanted to model the kinds of things that have to become the new normal, which is to speak out and really put ourselves on the line. Of course, we have to turn into virtual actions now, but what started off very small became a big deal. People from all over the country would come to D.C. to join in civil disobedience, and people learned a lot. We had a teach-in every week, and hundreds of thousands of people followed those teach-ins, and every teach-in would focus on a different aspect of the climate crisis, oceans, forests, women, What's the relationship between war and climate change and so forth? So now with this uh, coronavirus epidemic, we've decided to continue the fire drill Fridays every Friday at 11 o'clock Pacific time, 2 o'clock Eastern time. We'll do it virtually on Zoom. You know, this coming Friday is going to be the first one with Senator Ed Markey, who's the co-sponsor with AOC, it's going to be um, talking to him about what we can do right now to help make sure that the bailout from the health crisis is going to also help us with the climate crisis. This is an unprecedented amount of money that the government has come up with. And if it all goes to bailing out the fossil fuel industry and corporations and doesn't make us stronger as people, as workers, as a healthcare system, and build towards a fossil-free future, then we've wasted those trillions of dollars that they're talking about putting out there. So that's one of the things we're going to be talking about this Friday, and we're going to be doing it every Friday until we can get back to doing it in person. And 12,000-plus people have said they want to bring Fire Drill Fridays to their local towns and cities. So we're going to be working on that once this crisis is over. I think something that's been amazing is how you've you've equipped so many of your actor friends to uh, be a part of these protests. I have a question. Is that a lot different than in like the 60s when you were protesting, like getting like other notable people involved? Is it much easier now? No, it's never easy for many, many reasons, but it's very important. And in the 80s, my then husband, Tom Hayden, and I used to have regular meetings with people in the Hollywood industry to talk about issues. There must have been dozens of celebrities that joined us on various campaigns for solar energy and to get rid of toxic chemicals and things like that. It's important because actors have a platform and you know, if the right wing attacks us for speaking out on issues, it's because they know that it's effective. For better or worse, people do pay attention when celebrities speak out. So I want to encourage them, all of us who have a celebrity platform, to use it to call attention to the other pandemic that we're confronting, because it isn't just a corona crisis that's happening. There's a a climate crisis, which is also a global pandemic. And we have to take advantage of this moment to gird ourselves against the health crisis and the climate crisis. 
And unfortunately, what's happening is that the Trump administration, big surprise, is calling out trillions of dollars to bail out the fossil fuel industry, to bail out the aviation industry, for example. How about some quid pro quos? You know, not all quid pro quos are impeachable. How about if we're going to give money to the aviation industry saying, okay, you can only have this money if you pay attention to your workers, if you continue paying your workers, number one. And number two, if you lower your carbon footprint, you want the money? Do this. You can do it. So use this money as an incentive to help workers and help the climate. I would almost prefer you be at the counter doing this. The, the one saying, oh, you want the money? Here's what you need. Anyway, <laughs> I think you'd be cute at it. Yes, in my red coat. <laughs> <laughs> it's interesting to talk about the response from the Trump administration because I feel like we're in an era where so many people were shocked to see Trump specifically targeting celebrities and naming them and even naming private citizens. And I remember the documentary of yours, Jane Fonda in Five Acts, opens with audio of President Nixon calling you out by name. And I just wanted to know what that felt like at the time because Trump's behavior seems sort of like an abnormality at the time at least it did and you actually experienced a president calling you out for your activism well it's scary because it's not just words at the time there were also people taking my bank account it was the first time that the uh, the CIA had actually taken a private American citizens bank account it's uh, they broke into my home there were bad things that happened as a result of the president being so obsessed one of the reasons that he was obsessed was because what I was doing was supporting active duty soldiers who were protesting the war. And that was the aspect of the anti-war movement that most freaked out uh, Richard Nixon. If you're worrying people who are doing bad things, then you know you're doing the right thing, I guess. How do you see restructuring of the fire drill Fridays and of activism during this pandemic that we're experiencing? How do you think that you'll be able to get that back on the ground after all the internet stuff that you'll be able to do? Well, there's a tremendous amount of uh, internet activism right now. Um, I was just part of a meeting the other day, a labor and climate meeting that had 75 people on it, and I'm old, so this stuff doesn't come naturally to me, but I, I find it fascinating. There's so much that people can do from home. For example, calling your senators emailing your senators, asking them to not bail out big corporations and leave workers and families behind. I do, you know, I blog, and one of my recent blogs had very, very clear instructions on how to divest from the fossil fuel industry, how you make sure to ha that your bank, that your entire retirement fund, that the institutions that you relate to, your churches, your temples, your universities, your colleges, that all of these things are not investing in the fossil fuel industry. It was put together by Bill McKibben, the co-founder of 350.org, who started an effort called Stop the Money Pipeline. And I urge people, by the way, to go on the website StopTheMoneyPipeline.com and they can uh, learn a whole lot. Or you can go to my blog, JaneFonda.com. And a couple of blogs ago, there's information about how to divest. Well, you can do that from home. So that's one really, really critical thing. Um, I'm soon going to be blogging about why it's important to reduce the Pentagon budget, how unbelievably ridiculously overbloated our Pentagon budget is. And when you think of 
that this country of ours, this wealthy country, has a terrible health care system. It's underfunded. It has been for a long time. It didn't just start with the COVID-19 crisis. It's been cut back and weakened for a long, long time through many administrations. And we have to turn this around, not only to deal with this current crisis, but with the climate crisis. It's critical that we have a robust health care system. So one of the ways to do that and to meet the climate crisis is to cut the Pentagon budget. So I want to try to help educate people and you can do this at home on what's the matter with our Pentagon budget, because people say, oh, you can't cut the Pentagon budget because you'll be um, hurting soldiers. You'll be doing bad things to the troops. Well, guess what? Uh, too many of our soldiers are on food stamps, while the CEOs at the top of the companies that work with the Pentagon are making $20 million a year, for example, and, and more. The money's not going to the troops necessarily. And we have to look after our troops, but we have to cut the bloat out of our Pentagon budget and use it for what the country really needs. All of this can be done while you're sitting on your couch, you know. So there, there's plenty to do. There's plenty of planning that, to do. There's plenty of educating that can be done. Letters and calls, to, as I said, to our elected officials. But it's a great time to learn and to build that fire under your butt that can get you to take to the streets when the time comes. And the time People can't come. see you right now, but you're also wearing like a black hoodie. So you look like a ninja who's about to take on like, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> all this. Even during this time, are you succeeding in getting your friends and other celebrities to help you with this crisis online? Well, it's a little bit more difficult online, except for, you know, there, there's some celebrities are, have real expertise, like Ted Danson in, with Oceans. Mm -hmm. uh, Sam Waterston has has a lot of expertise in various areas. Diane Lane does too. It depends. I mean, I, I hope so. I hope I can get celebrities to come on. It, it'll be a little different because with Fire Grill Fridays, the in-person version, one of the things that I loved was we had celebrities, more than them giving speeches, they would introduce the experts, the voices from the front lines, the scientists, whose voices don't often get heard. So we were really using our celebrity platform to showcase the voices that really need to be heard. Mm -hmm. And whether that will work online, I'm not sure. But we're going to have really interesting people, that's for sure, whether they're celebrities in the Hollywood sense and or scientists and experts in the frontline sense. I'm, I'm not sure. Um, to diverge quickly... I think something that has stunned me recently in watching all these seasons of Grace and Frankie, which is finally coming to an end, is that you are, and you have always been like this in real life, hilarious. Go, I mean, like you, you've always started in light comedies, going back to Barefoot in the Park and Any Wednesday and stuff like that. But how does it feel now to probably be, or certainly be, the funniest you've ever been? Uh, are you shocked to be <laughs> doing the funniest project of your life now? Oh, gosh. Thank you. Thank you. I, I don't feel funny. I don't, I mean, I sh maybe I shouldn't say that, but, you know, I come from a long line of depressed people. <laughs> if Prozac had existed 50 years ago, my life would have been very different because my dad and mother would have been much different. It's too bad that it took so long to get us that kind of help. But I don't, you know, for example, Lily, I love Lily Tomlin so much. Lily's first take on everything is humorous. 
And I just, it's why I love to be with her because I try to make some of that rub off on me, but it makes me happy that you think I'm funny. Maybe it's because I don't think I'm funny that I'm funny. I I, I don't know. Uh, I'm funny when I I'm drink. still holding on to when you said fuzzy rat's ass earlier. So yes, <laughs> yes, very funny. <laughs> yeah, but see, that came from my, Ted Turner is seriously funny. So a lot of the things that he used to say, I've stolen so I can fool people into thinking I'm funny. I owe him a great debt of gratitude. He is really funny. I like being able to do comedies. And I hope, you know, when, when Grace and Frankie is over, it makes me so sad. I'm going to go on the road with Annie Leonard, the director of Greenpeace USA, for a couple of years to build the climate movement. And then I hope, let's see, I'll be 84. <laughs> Maybe, well, Betty White kept working. Maybe I can still get jobs in comedies because people need to laugh. And besides, you look better when you're old, <laughs> smiling rather than serious. <laughs> Jane, one of the most exciting theater experiences of my life was getting to see you in Moises Kaufman's The 33 Variations in 2009. And I know that you started out in theater in New York as sort of a way to separate yourself from your father's career back in Hollywood. And I wondered if you still felt a pull towards theater. That's certainly one way to tell stories that speak to society's current issues. Well, I certainly loved the experience doing 33 Variations. That was a great experience. I hadn't done theater for 45 years, and I wanted to see if I could have a really great theater experience like my father used to have all the time. He he, he was a, an actor who did more theater, and that wasn't done in those days. But he, he always went back to Broadway and, and did plays, and he, he really loved it. And it was a, a great experience for me. I don't think I want to do it anymore. Here's why. It costs so much money to do a play, and... They don't often succeed, and the tickets cost so much money. And I don't want to do something that only wealthy people can see. I'd rather do television because a lot of people can see it. Number two, I'm old, and so whatever I do has to be able to get out there fast to a large population. Television does that, and theater doesn't. And since I'm an activist at heart, I'm more interested in reaching very broad numbers of people. If I have something that I think it's important to say. Correct me if I'm wrong. Wasn't your birth announced as your father was performing in something? <laughs> uh, yeah, he was making Jezebel. William Wyler was directing it. He, he had in his contract that he could leave the theater to go and attend my birth which I think is pretty cool. <laughs> Good for him. Yeah. He, in fact, he sent a telegram to William Wyler three minutes after I was born. It was from me. Dear Mr. Wyler, my name, because I was, you know what I was called at birth? Lady Jane Fonda. So, dear, dear Joel, my name is Lady Fonda, and I'm told that you are a fine director, and I'm also told that I'm very pretty. <laughs> um, I'm blonde and I have blue eyes and I hope when I get older you will hire me to do a movie with you <laughs> that was my dad actually he did have a good sense of humor in some ways <laughs> doing Grace and Frankie and even recent films like Book Club do you miss the darker 70s era of your career? 
I'm such a fan of they shoot horses, don't they? And Clute. And I really enjoyed how you sunk your teeth into those dark, demented roles. I do miss them. Yes. Demented. Uh, <laughs> I know what you mean, though. Yeah, I, I would love before it's over, I would love to do um, a really, really good movie like like those were that I can, as you said, sink my teeth into. But, you know, these days, God, the letters that I get online from people for whom Grace and Frankie is their salvation, their life jacket. It keeps them going. It gives them hope. There's something to be said for laughter these days, right? Jane, before you go, I want to know, and I bet the other listeners want to know, how they can get involved with Fire Drill Fridays and how they can witness the conversation that's going to be had. Thank you for asking. Um, text Jane, J-A-N-E, to 877-877. That's how you can keep up on what we're doing and uh, let us know you want to be involved and you will hear from us. Us, by the way, is Fire Drill Friday has become a project of Greenpeace because to take Fire Drill Friday national is a big undertaking and Greenpeace has the capacity to do that. So I'm very proud to be working with Greenpeace. They have an incredible team that I love so much. Then you can, of course, go online, firedrillfriday.com. You can follow us on Facebook and Twitter and Instagram all those kinds of things that I have a hard time remembering. But I'd, I'd love people to join us and listen and, and be a part and poise yourself and get ready for when we can be back together in the flesh. And by the way, if you're stuck in captivity, I'm just going to throw this out there. The fastest way to become a Jane Fonda superfan in regards to her movies is to put on They Shoot Horses, Don't They, as Ira just said. And I want to also throw mm-hmm. up, we already talked about the China Syndrome. Julia, a wonderful classic that's definitely super rewatchable. And underrated, Fun with Dick and Jane. Fun with George Dick and Siegel Jane. George Segal and Jane That was the first one I saw. Yeah. <laughs> that was one of my many comeback films. <laughs> Monster in Law being the other. You know, I was when I was in jail in D.C., um, and I was in a room full of, of quite young African-American women and um, – they, they didn't understand why they were with this white woman in this red coat. So they asked me what I did, and I said, well, I'm, I'm an actress. They barely, you know, it was like they had other things to think about. But um, <laughs> they said, well, what? one of them wanted to know what they might have seen me in. And I knew there was only one movie of mine that they probably had seen, and that was Monster, Monster in Law. Law. Yes. And yes. they kind of reacted to that. It didn't last long, but... That that was a hugely that was another comeback movie. Yes, yes. You and J Lo in a movie together. That's my intersection of things that I love. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Thank you so much for joining us, Jane. Yeah, thank you, Jane. Thank you for having me. I really appreciate it. It's been fun. And also, I just want to say, like, by the way, meet your heroes, because Jane Fonda lives up to the hype and is rad as hell, and we are so, so psyched you came and chatted with us today. Yes. Thank you. Thank you. Keep It is brought to you by Barefoot Dreams. Lewis? Yes? When you see Footprints in the Sand, that was when I carried you in my Barefoot Dreams rub. Now, is that a Leona Lewis song? 
<laughs> no? Uh, if you want to bring coziness into your life, you turn to Barefoot Dreams, especially now as the brand is celebrating their 30th anniversary. With those 30 years of coziness, Barefoot Dreams celebrates being the originators of everyone's favorite luxe home blanket. And while many have attempted to duplicate their blankets, robes, and more, Barefoot Dreams' fabrication and quality cannot be replicated, so don't believe the dupes. Girl, this blanket is it. I effing love this blanket. I'm thinking about it right now, and I want to jump in my bed, which is sponsored by something that we'll do another ad for momentarily. Get ready. There's a reason why Barefoot Dreams has been on Oprah's favorite things list six times. Jesus, get a life, Oprah. My God. (laughs) Dressing head to toe in Barefoot Dreams is the key to comfort as their collection of ultra-soft robes, loungewear, and accessories are made with premium materials. Their products make the perfect gifts, too. Uh, I throw this thing on. I wear it like a shawl. I look exactly like Ellen Burstyn. And <laughs> I am the coziest a human being can be. Because by the way, it's still that time in Los Angeles where it's like pretty mild outside and then your apartment is cold. I can't explain mm. it. I don't know things like basic science. For Keep It listeners, you can get 15% off your first purchase at barefootdreams.com with the code KEEPIT15. Don't miss out on Barefoot Dreams soft, soothing fabrics that will bring luxury to your life. Are tensions in your home running high under quarantine? Are you having a spat with your roommate or a quarrel with your lover? Well, we're about to pick sides in our new segment called Keep It Civil. We're going full daytime judge TV show. And we'll also wonder why the hell you reached out to us because it was not your smartest move. But we'll, we'll, we'll do our best. I'm going <laughs> full, full Judge Judy for this. <laughs> Absolutely. I'm going to be Judge Mathis. Okay, who are you, Lewis? Oh, God. I'm Judge Reinhold from 80s comedies. <laughs> <laughs> you ever seen Vice Versa? So good. All right, let's take a listen to our first case. Hi, Aida, Lewis, and Ira. This is Eric from Austin, Texas. Longtime listener, first time caller. My quarantine spat is very minor, very petty, very one sided, but I still need to be heard. So, my roommate and I both work from home. We are both very fortunate that we get to work from home. I'd like to add that I started working from home first. But anyway, that's beside the point. Every morning, he's in the living room, sitting there, eating his breakfast, drinking his diet soda every single morning, afternoon, and evening. You know, I'll go outside and uh, get a cup of water, or I'll go to the kitchen to do something, Briefly, and he's just sitting there. Why? What is he doing? Why can't he go to his room? Why can't he go to the other side of the living room? I don't know. It's just all too much. And like I mentioned, I know it's petty. I know it's silly. But I guess I just really want it to vent. I know this issue very well because I think... If you've had a roommate before, you've probably encountered the one roommate who loves to sit on the couch at all times, even when you're not locked down in your house. Uh, I don't, maybe I am the only one who's experienced this before, too. I've definitely experienced this where someone takes over the communal space and doesn't really have a respect for like, that's you're supposed to share that area. You're supposed to share that fully. But also in regards to this call-in, go to your room. <laughs> 
Go to, your, <laughs> like, go to your bedroom. You can't be mad that this man has a routine. Like, we're all stuck at home. What do you mean go to the other side of the living room? Go to your bedroom. But I, but I know. Cabin fever. It's so hard to explain social cues to people. But mm-hmm. just the fact of the matter is you shouldn't be in a space where like your roommate has to look at you all the time. You know what I mean? Like True. you have to make yourself scarce just to make um, the situation livable. So I think that's what's awkward. Unfortunately, all he can do is literally confront him and say, I need this couch for the next four hours. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's it's harder to do when you don't have people coming over and yeah. be like, oh, you know, we're about to watch a movie. Can I have the couch? But yeah, if, if you want to not look at him, you're going to have to tell him, go in your room. Does your roommate not masturbate? I just, yeah. I just have so many questions. Is he doing it on the couch when you are in your room? Because if so, you have a whole other set of problems. Yeah, maybe he was too scared to tell us the whole story. Did we ever consider that? Yeah. <laughs> that person needs toilet paper and wipes way more than we do right now. Yes. The twist is the roommate is his dad. Oh, <laughs> He's there every day drinking the same Diet Coke. Yeah, he can't swallow. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, I think I think we're on the side of you got to just tell your roommate that you don't want to look at him all day. Yeah. And go to his room. Also, I mean, like, I think the truth of the matter is there's tension because of the situation and breaking up the tension, especially since you're stuck in the same space with him, is just the right thing to do anyway. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Cool. All right. Case closed. Case closed. Next case. Hey, Aida, Ira, and Lewis. So my boyfriend and I have been long distance for the past three years with him in Arizona for work and me in New York. Before the city shut down, I got the fuck out of there, and I've been in Arizona for the past week and a half. So we are learning to live together under social distancing conditions, which I think is very brave, but also honestly might just be what it's like to live in Arizona. Anyways, we've been learning some stuff, and my sticking point has been that instead of changing workout clothes every time he works out, he just lays them on the side of the laundry basket, including the socks, and rewears them the next day. Is this gross or just efficient? Uh, you can guess which thing I think is true. Thanks. Death penalty. Oh, <laughs> Electric be... chair. No, no. Wash your damn clothes. Like, what? Ugh. This would be different if it were a situation where he was like letting them air out so then he could put them in the hamper so that they don't get moldy or something like that. But if he's re-wearing them, that's disgusting. I think that's gross. Also, is he just not working out? Like, it's like impossible to put those clothes back on if you had an efficient workout. So actually, Mm -hmm. he sounds like he's not even exercising all that well. (laughs) Mm -mm. (laughs) Is he actually exercising, Lindsay? What's your boyfriend actually doing when he leaves the home? That's what I'm wondering. I'm into conspiracy theories. Oh, wow. This could be a whole different question. Three, she said that they'd been together for a couple years long distance. And now that he's, now that they're together, personal hygiene is a hard conversation to have with other people, but when it is imposing on your comfort, I feel like it's fair. Personally, I want to say it's her fault for going to Arizona in the first place. Right. Mm. You should have stayed where you were, girl. Like Stevie Nicks left Arizona. You know what I mean? They all leave. (laughs) (laughs) Sit your ass back home. Uh, Did you just really love John McCain? The Grand Canyon, you only need to see it once. Honestly, you can get out of there in about seven minutes. I think we've turned and now we're blaming you, Lindsay. It's your fault. It's your fault for going to Arizona in the first place. Stop dating men who don't sweat. (laughs) (laughs) Well, also, this corresponds with my keep it last week about how working out at home is annoying just because to manually stress yourself out, to sweat 
alone is such a weird feeling, mm-hmm. especially if you're not running outdoors where, you know, it's, it feels a little bit more normal. There's at least a breeze on you. So to, in fact, ignore that discomfort and live in your own sweat without dealing with it is, I mean, I'll say it, a social problem. Also, we've all experienced wearing something again that you may have like sweated in and like you've you've forgotten about it the smell when those clothes start to move around should be enough to make you take that off yeah. and never wear it again it's horrid it's like ruminated it festered there it's, it doesn't even smell like you it smells like the worst version of you and that's that anyway next case hi everyone my name is marcel um so my spat or quarrel is currently with my brother So he works at a coffee shop that right now in Arizona is only doing drive-thru coffee, but he's consistently going out with his friends on drives and on coffee dates through the drive-thru and just sitting in the car and everything. I've been trying to get him to stay his ass home because I don't know what his friends have and they're carrying home with us, but he thinks I'm overreacting, so... That is what my current situation is. I think it's something that's hard to reconcile in the human brain right now is that we're at a very critical time in which you can do very simple things not to contract coronavirus or spread it and how mundane it feels to do nothing. Like, Mm -hmm. because you're so bored, you're just like, well, whatever, I'll go out. Who cares? And meanwhile, you're going against the entire reason we're doing this. So of course you're not overreacting to this. He's doing the one thing he shouldn't do. Honestly, right now, you have one job to invoke an old meme. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Yeah. Fuck your brother. (laughs) Honestly. Uh, I get that he's still working, but uh, we truly literally would all like to leave our homes at some point and we will not be able to do that if people continue to just feel like this doesn't affect them also look like you can drink things on camera tell your brother to facetime his friends he doesn't need to leave the crib like that like he's not only putting you at risk he's putting himself at risk and everyone else around him and yeah you don't know where he's going what he's doing how long he's how close he's getting to people if they're sitting in cars that's not six feet there's so many, so many things wrong with that. Like, I'm sorry. I'd be livid if I were you. Does he think he's above having a very dark happy hour over video chat like we all have? I mean, Lewis and I played Quiplash over Oh, that's cute. Google Hangouts the other day. It's weird, but get used to it. Yeah, I went, it I went to an improv show yesterday on Zoom and watched people do improv. Okay, well, that's sick. Well, yeah, I guess that's an addiction is what that is. <laughs> that worries me. Yes. No, uh, recently, a friend of mine was like, oh, let's go to uh, Runyon Canyon. We can do social distancing and, you know, run that way. And I thought about it. And then he said, oh, uh, okay, I'll pick you up. And then I have two other friends with me. And I said, well, we absolutely cannot do that. No, Do you yeah. not understand what's happening here? This, this isn't quarantining. And then, of course... Uh, there was news that Runyon Canyon was just overloaded with people over the weekend. Yep. Yeah. It looks like a Where's Waldo illustration, just full of people. <laughs> so um, get it through your skull. Oh Got to separate. And it requires yeah. constant attention and, and vigilance. And Garcetti had to shut down the beaches and the parks because people were just hanging out outside. Because in some people's minds, social distancing just meant you can't be in each other's houses. And being outside somehow protects you from the virus. The only ocean you should be consuming right now is Ocean Vong. <laughs> or Frank Ocean. Ocean Vong that and too. Frank Ocean. Yeah. That's it. Those are your only two options. Billy Ocean, he's on the table. 
Okay. Or vodka and ocean spray. Uh-huh. That's what I'm talking about. Wow, we did really well there with that run, speaking of improv. Yeah. Mm-hmm. All right, next case. So both my parents are doctors, and they're both dealing with COVID-19 right now. And my sibling and I, you know, are at home because we don't have school. And we cleaned up from something we baked last night, but left one item in the sink. And she yelled at us because she said she was sick of the burden of not having clean dishes um, every time she walks into the kitchen. And she's been mad, like really mad about it recently. So that's been really high tension and really stressful for like no real good reason. Wash your fucking dish. Yeah. <laughs> do, you, yeah. do you realize how many times growing up in a black household I've been yelled at for leaving a spoon in the sink? I have yeah. no... I've been I've been beat I've been beat for less (laughs) I've been beat for way less but I but I will say this first of all thank you to your mother your parents for being you know doctors during this time and also to be mindful of the fact that like your mom all of her stress and everything she's feeling right now is exacerbated because she's working so hard and the least you could do while you're sitting your ass at home is wash every dish I know you're like I wash some of them but wash all of them in fact go out of your way to do extra shit for her right now so she can come home to a clean house she's not working at a clean hospital right now also what was the dish <laughs> like was it a ball or was yeah. it like or was it like a baking pan yeah that is critical also I just want to congratulate this person for sending like a gangster in a cartoon I was like God, <laughs> you should be auditioning for Adult Swim right now well, it felt like it felt like he was speaking in hushed tones because he was afraid that his mom would hear him sending his voice memo yeah. and, and, and come snatch him up. I could hear the shadows around him. <laughs> that poor boy. I do feel for him, though. I do feel for him. I don't know how young he was, but he said he's home from school, so I can just imagine. He must be pretty young because yeah. at a certain point, you get old enough to know not to leave dishes in your mama's sink. Mm-hmm. I don't do that when I go home. Over the holidays. Mm-mm. Though I've got news for you. Truly, it is a fate worse than death. I have that version of ADD where I cannot stand folding clothes or washing a dish. There's something about it that saps all the energy for me. Like almost my day is ruined. So yeah. I'm sympathetic with people who just almost can't bring themselves to do it. But I mean, in these trying times, I mean, pick up a towel. Let's do it. Lewis, is this you telling us that you have not washed the dishes in your home? <laughs> you know what? I'm not the one on trial here. We're actually asking other people about their problems. So why don't you shut your fucking filthy mouth? All right. We've got one more case. Hi, Keep It. This is Casey. I'm having a spat with my roommate about her dog because it's constantly peeing and pooping in our apartment. She's not home enough to take care of it. It goes out for about two minutes for the entire day. And recently, I was walking to the kitchen. I stepped in dog poop in our kitchen on my way to make a pizza. I reacted immaturely. I slammed my door and my bookshelf fell on my record player and that broke. So the issue is the dog isn't being taken out enough. She shouldn't own a dog. And I've told her that she didn't like it. She also didn't take the trash out, I might add. And does she owe me a new record player? Is something also to think about. Maybe you just need a new roommate. (laughs) Uh, Or walk the dog yourself. I don't know. Every single thing about that was wretched. Including the... Rube Goldberg like contraptions <laughs> falling apart at the end. <laughs> it's like he's it's like he's playing mousetrap. It's yeah. like when the dog poops, all the things happen. Right after that. This is such a shame. Like you're in such a shitty spot. Sorry for that word I chose because 
you can't do anything. The dog can't go anywhere during this time. You're just going to have to keep stepping in poop until self-isolation is over. Yeah, I mean, unfortunately, this is a situation where it seems like you really should not be living with this person. And you would likely move out if you weren't currently quarantined together. But uh, look for a new roommate when this is all over. And in the meantime, I would say the only option that I would I'd like, I would actually start walking the dog myself to be honest. Yeah. Because the other option is, do you just want to stew while the dog continues to just like shit all over the house? I think also if I were being sneaky about it, what I would do is constantly ask her questions about taking care of the dog since you apparently are stuck taking care of it. So literally get so monotonous and bore her with questions about absolutely every step, which will hammer home to her that, oh my God, you're the one taking care of the dog and not her. So maybe she'll feel obligated to step up or like be like a decent human being. I'm sorry, this person should be sent to the Hague. Yes. Or just fully stop cleaning up after the dog and let the house turn to shit. And then she'll have to realize. That's the chaotic good we like from Aida Osman right there. <laughs> <laughs> you could fully turn this into War of the Roses here and yes. just let, let the home deteriorate. <laughs> Brown gardens, yes. Well, that was fun. Uh I realize it does stress me out listening to other people's drama. Uh, but if you have any other cohabitating issues, go ahead and send us a voice memo to keep it at cricket.com. Coming up next, Jeremy O'Harris. Look around. You can find cars like these on Auto Trader. New cars, used cars, electric cars, maybe even flying cars. Okay, no flying cars, but as soon as they get invented, they'll be on Auto Trader. Just you wait. Auto Trader. As coronavirus ravages every industry, Hollywood and Broadway and theater in general are not immune. Cinemas and theaters are temporarily closed and artists across the industry are reckoning with what is and isn't possible when TV, movies, and theater cannot be made or seen without people congregating in the same place. So while studios are pushing back tentpole releases and exhibitors are laying off staff, Hollywood writers' rooms are happening through video conferencing and... Then we have whatever is going on in the theater. And to talk a bit about that, we are joined by playwright Jeremy O'Harris, back on Keep It. Hi, Jeremy. Back. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Tell us where you are right now. I am in London, in uh, Islington, um, which is very close to where I was recently putting up a play. Mm -hmm. So you were putting up Daddy. Tell us a bit about that. Um, so yeah, Daddy was a play that I premiered in New York last year. It was really exciting and fun. And the day before the critics came, or the critics' reviews came out, the day before opening, mm-hmm. um, Rupert Gould, a director of Judy, mm-hmm. um, saw saw our production and was like, we want this at the Almeida. Um, so it was really exciting. I Like, all I'd ever wanted was to have a play premiere in the UK or Berlin, um, because I'm that type of queen. And- <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, and it was about to happen up until about two weeks ago. So, Jeremy, as somebody who's known you now for a few years, something my favorite thing about 
your progression over the past two years or something is like every time I read an article about you, I feel like the the author has to explain you to me. They're like, uh, the ne'er-do-well of theater, whatever, just like the <laughs> amount of descriptors to get into who Jeremy O'Harris is every time is hilarious. Do you have a favorite way you have been described? Um, Helen Shaw, who's actually one of my favorite writers, um, wrote about me for four columns. Like, she used, like, three different French, like, phrases, like, one of which was, like, enfant terrible, like, you know, like, <laughs> all of you, like, like, or any other French phrase you could think of. I was like, wow, you really just decided to, like, throw them all in the blender and just say, like, fuck you. <laughs> but, yeah, no, that one's kind of interesting. I also still like the queer black savior of the American theater. Um, I saw that one. Before I had ever made a play in the American theater that anyone had seen at any like large scale. It was just something that Out Magazine just decided to say, which I think is kind of major. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, It is uh, so weird because it's, you know, it's like one everything is shut down so we're all under this you know sort of like new normal but in terms of like hollywood and tv and etc you know like there's a lot of money in that industry you know and pushing things back uh is the ideal thing for like a big movie like mulan or like fast and furious right but and like we're continuing writers rooms but for you for theater artists it's like that shit really does hurt, especially, you know, plays that were just open, that had to close immediately, like, they're done if they were already going to be shutting down. And the idea of, will some shows that were supposed to be opening be able to bounce back with just the loss of money and performers not yeah. having money? I mean, I think thinking about Broadway is one thing, but I think that thinking about just the entire topography of the American theater, mm-hmm. like being decimated by this is another. Like, you know, I had friends who had plays premiering in like Minnesota and mm-hmm. Chicago, things that they've been working on for like three, four, five years yeah. that were just like, well, that's not happening anymore. So um, see ya never maybe, yeah. you know? And that, and like And like the show was announced, it had a cast. They were in like two or three weeks of rehearsals. And for a lot of these theaters, I mean, I think that also the thing that's, really um, crazy to me is that like this huge thing happened and no one seems to know what to do except live in a state of delusion. Mm-hmm. And there's like, well, uh, we'll just continue business as usual in three months, four months. And so for film and television, that means just like pushing back production. But for theater, that means like, well, in four months that play didn't exist. So that play's not happening anymore. Now to the next season. Mm-hmm. And I think what's daunting is that like, A, I think that that delusion is a really dark thing to exist within because um, because I think this is going to last longer than two, three, or four months. Like I think this is going to be like a constant for like twelve to eighteen months. Mm-hmm. Um, but moreover, what sort of precedent does that set for like the well-being and the morale of a community when people can put this much effort in something and see it completely washed away in a flood without any recourse or any semblance of like people trying to like reassemble the pieces back together? Yeah. Is there, and I know that, you know, even prior to the coronavirus, WGA and writers rooms were having difficulty and figuring their stuff out, but is there an avenue for independent playwrights who have, you know, lost their jobs or lost their source of income during this time? Union, anything like that? So there's a dramatist guild. And I think that right now, like a lot of the guilds got together. A lot, the reason that like Cuomo like pushed to shut down all the theaters was because like the actors equity and 
all like basically all the guilds got together and made like a super guild and were like, this is unsafe for theater artists. Please just like demand that they get shut down. But I think that everyone's trying to figure it out. I mean, I think that one positive of this is that it's forcing our industry to have a real conversation around like digitizing theater and like mm -hmm. making things available um, to stream and to watch, which I think that Dramatist Guild and the Actors' Equity have been very, very reticent to make contracts that would be um, make that possible. And now it seems like everyone's scrambling to do that, which is one good thing. But I think that one of the things that's really difficult about young independent playwrights is that like, I mean, it's the same thing that I would say about a young independent filmmaker, right? Like if you're doing your first indie film with a company that might go under because of the fact that we don't have an artist bailout in our country in the same way that Germany has, mm -hmm. then like, um, I don't know what to tell you, then like, I hope that, you know, this doesn't destroy your, your spirit completely. For my show, at least, I'm feeling really sad about the fact that, like, as much as, like, no one wants to say it, I don't know that we will be able to do Daddy at the Almeida in any time that makes sense for all of the players involved. Yeah, because yeah, what people, you know, you explained it already, but, like, what people don't realize is that theater seasons are set months, sometimes a year or so, in advance, mm -hmm. and it's not as simple as... Well, this five months, like, we'll just put it up when we're done. It's like someone else is hoping that this ends in time for their show to open up because they're supposed to be starting rehearsal there. Yes. Yeah. Yes, exactly. And so, like, and how unfair would that be for me to be like, sorry, Lucy, Pre Lucy Preble, like, my show. <laughs> you know? Um, so it's like figuring all that out is like really crazy. And also just like the fact that I think a lot of theaters are hit, especially in the UK, are going to be hit financially so hard by this. Um, because like in the UK, they um, one of the first things Boris Johnson decimated was arts money, the money that went to theaters from the arts uh, or from the Arts Council. So um, a lot of theaters, I think, I think are worried about the fact that like not having ticket sales for six months and still having to pay out all of the performers and designers and staff that work in these theaters for the next six months yeah. um, who had contracts already means that like they might not have money to run a season next year. Mm. And what does that mean? Do they just shutter their blinds and say like, sorry, Corona ended us? Or do they figure out other ways to stay open by like, you know, doing 14 shows with Andrew Scott and Phoebe Waller Bridge. Like, <laughs> <laughs> well, Fleabag, Fleabag the musical. <laughs> <laughs> there's a, well, there's a high possibility that, you know, social anxiety and the fear to be in populated spaces, which live entertainment it relies upon, will be dwindled because of this. If you could dream up a new way for theater to work in the digital space, how do you think that that would look? I never had that sense that, like, I have to be in a space with a play to love it. Um, but what I have always dreamed was that like kids who grow up in some like small town in Virginia could get like a digital seat to like some VR version of a play where like they sit row C in the orchestra of Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf with Laurie Metcalf and their school's gotten surpassed. So everyone shows up at the school at 730 like they're going to see a Broadway show and they all put on their VR mask and like watch the play. Yeah, That would be like my dream version of it. But um, I don't know that, I think the technology of um, the technology for VR hasn't made it so that you can stay in VR for longer than 45 minutes without getting um, vertigo. Also, you just described what would have been my ideal childhood, going to school, yeah. dressing up to watch Laurie Metcalf in, 
in virtual reality. You know sure. what's interesting about you also is like, I mean, you are ob- obviously and rightly described as like what's new in theater. But I also feel like you are so extremely versed in every type of theater, like going all the way back. What is like th- the most kind of classic piece of theater that you still find extremely relevant? I think that like the classic avant-garde is still super relevant. I think that like we haven't explored people like Marita Bonner who wrote, who's a black experimental writer from the 1920s who wrote um, Purple Flower Play with the same depth that we've explored Waiting for Godot, right? Mm -hmm. Like I think that we still haven't like explored like Adrian Kennedy's work to the depth that we could explore it. And like, you know, or or even someone who's like even more recent like Marina Irene Fornes. There's so many amazing artists from uh, especially female artists who have like been working on the like fringes of the avant for most of the 20th century, whose work didn't get more than one or two productions. Mm-hmm. And I think that, that that work we could really delve into. And I also think I love musicals. And I also think that like, I love classic musicals. And there was this discourse going around the other day that Larry Owens wanted to see like, not like a Bartlett share, like, or Evo Van Hove, a dark stripped down version of a little night music, but like the big bombast, like golden era of Broadway version of it. And I'm mm-hmm. like, yes, I want to see that too. Mm-hmm. Like that's really exciting because I, I love musicals so much. And I feel like we don't take enough chances on like them being right already. And we don't take enough chances on like a tourship. Like, I, I want both and with, with musicals. And that's why I love like Oklahoma. Mm-hmm. And I really liked Carousel, mm-hmm. even though Carousel is like weird and problematic. Carousel is certainly a mess. <laughs> uh, and I don't know that Carousel could ever really be salvaged, but I did love the Oklahoma uh, production. And uh, speaking of classic plays, you had given a talk once to somewhere about classic plays that people should read if they want to learn the theater form. And one of them you mentioned was Major Barbara. And I was like, Wait, I do fuck with that play. And I actually went out and got it and read it again. I hadn't read it since undergrad. And uh, that's a really good play. And we don't even do George Bernard Shaw as much as we We don't do George Bernard Shaw, and we 100% should, because he's like, he was like one of the biggest, like, like the Kim Kardashian, like Taylor Swift drama has nothing on the drama he played with, like, Britney. <laughs> and like, I really wish people would like read his letters where he just like go off on like how bad everyone else was at writing plays than him whenever he'd get a bad review. He'd be like, oh really? You think my play is bad? But you liked a doll's house, honey. Okay, everything was wrong with that play. Was like, he was savage. I I love him so much. I just drooled thinking about how much I love George. <laughs> But yeah, there. I mean, there are even white men we don't do as much as we should, and it's crazy because people. It shows like how small people's imaginations are. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I mean, like one of the great gifts of the quarantine has been that like so many theaters have been like, let's open up our archives. It's so, like the Wooster Group opened yeah. up their archives, so you can watch all these Wooster Group videos. The Schaubühne in Berlin opened up every play they've ever done, which like. I please hope that people, someone out there, even if it's only one person, watches the Schaubühne's like version of a doll's house because it's one of my favorite versions when she does the dance to the the uh the tarantella dance or whatever she does it to like slap my bitch up or something like that (laughs) and like it's so fucking violent and cool and i just hope people watch some of those things what corona did was give us all a cultural reset and said like you guys are putting out too much you guys all need to chill the fuck out and sit down for five minutes Mm -hmm. please um, and obviously it's a it's like not a personifiable thing because it's just like a, 
a random virus and it's gonna kill a lot of people. But I think for the purposes of talking in metaphor, I think that there is a real metaphor that we can have culturally about, you know, the need to stop and like re-examine what already exists and re-examine like um, what it means to just be like with other people um, with the things that already exist instead of constantly feeling like we have to move and make and like not even sit on the same temporal planes as our friends. Um, and that's been a real gift of this like last two weeks for me is that I've just like sat with a lot of books and plays and films that I had forgotten were foundational for me in like my need to like keep making more things. As we're um, sitting here with um, nothing to do, culture mm -hmm. to consume, uh, what would you suggest that uh, young people who want to be inspired to write their first play or... Uh, you know, just get other sorts of theater art out in this time, what should they be consuming? I would say to take a second and read, this is a great moment to engage with two of my favorite black female playwrights that people miss because, you know, we miss a lot of things in our culture, but we definitely miss black women or try to. Um, so don't miss these two. So find online the Adrian Kennedy reader or just like any of Adrian Kennedy's plays and then get all the plays of Alice Childress you can find online, either on Kindle or on, and especially with, with Adrian, like, because Adrian's still alive, like, buy her plays on fucking Kindle so this woman who's 89 years old can make her oh. coin. Mm -hmm. um, so, uh, so Alice Childress, Adrian Kennedy, and also, just because, like, the only play of hers you probably read was um, Raising the Sun, read all the plays of Lorraine Hansberry, because she was, like, amazingly lit. And then there's, like, phenomenal young playwrights right now who are doing work that I think you guys should all support. Um, so like check out um, Alicia Harris who just won the Wyndham Campbell Prize. Um, check out Ming Pfeiffer, uh, Celine Song, Antoinette Nwandu, uh, Will Arbery, uh, Donnie Love, Tori Sampson, so, so many of my friends. And I feel like this is one of those awkward moments where you're gonna like miss like three friends. I'm like, why didn't you say me on Keep It? And I'm like, because <laughs> I love you and my brain is broke um, because of Quar. Um, but I think that there's like a real swath of exciting young voices right, right now that are doing work. And I truly believe that like, there's a bad play to me, but there's no bad play objectively. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I think that what's exciting is like getting a large swath of a lot of different types of plays and deciding whether you love them or hate them. Because I think that's the most important thing to consume when you're young as well is like deep passion about something. So even if that passion is like, I absolutely detest Magnolia, like set <laughs> up, swallow it, and then like, you know, make something from that because like you'll come up with your own version of the thing that you think is more exciting or thrilling than Magnolia, even though that's a perfect film and you should reassess your taste if you dislike I it. I love how you were obsessed um, with Magnolia and Julianne Moore's scene. <laughs> well, we're all Amy Manhive here. Yeah. Uh, I've such so much cock. Um, yeah, uh, <laughs> then, um, I would also say check out um, check out just a bunch of weird like weird anime. I think Americans don't watch enough anime, and like it's the best storytelling. And I just watched the biggest anime feature in the world from like two years ago called Your Name. Mm -hmm. It's on Amazon. Check it out. Okay. Thank you so much for joining us again, Jeremy. Uh, Thank you. And Thank honestly. You my worst nightmare would be to be quarantined in London because I would want to be out in London. And so I- Well, they have two. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs>
Yeah. Or stop that last night. <laughs> he was like, stay your ass in home. <laughs> All right. Thank you guys so much. Thank yes, you. Thank pleasure. You. Nice to meet you. And we're back with our favorite segment of the episode. It is Keep It. I guess everyone's Keep It would be to us not being able to leave our homes. But (laughs) do we have actual Keep It's this week? Did anything happen? Everything is still coronavirus related. But yes, (laughs) things are happening. Um, I'm going to steal what Jeremy said earlier and call this the Quar from now on. I know that. (laughs) But my Keep It goes to just celebrities right now. Because I thought we were done when Gal Gadot and her celebrity gremlins were singing Imagine. <laughs> They're singing Imagine at us earlier. But um, there is nothing more bothersome than what celebrities are trying to do to remain like this superficial binding force during this trying time. But no one is handling this worse than Madonna. <laughs> Madonna <laughs> is handling self-isolation like she's truly spiraling, sis. I don't know. The other day, Madonna Madonna posted a video of her marinating in her bathtub, like in this milky broth with a bunch of rose petals. She posted this on her Instagram. And she's doing what I can only call is a, a poem. like i don't know if you've seen the video but it's a poem about coronavirus and it's just like a string of barely lucid thoughts (laughs) over piano music and it starts off with her going on about like it doesn't matter how rich you are and it doesn't matter how funny you are like coronavirus is the great equalizer and she's just really trying to evoke emotion in this video and i mean honestly i hate when anybody calls anything the great anything like you are not f scott fitzgerald like sit the fuck down <laughs> relax you don't need to, this is not the depression this is not the gatsby you don't get to call anything the great anything but um what about the great gazoo no not even that <laughs> <laughs> not even that and then and then halfway into the video so she's trying to like she cites herself like she's like remember when i said this in human nature like she really is losing it she really truly is who does that but girl just get your ass out of that bathtub and go buy a fucking puzzle or something don't do this turn your phone off that's it now i i mean ira and i are both somewhat serious madonna fans i'm like clinically a madonna fan okay let me let me just say I've been worried for her ever since she got on Twitter because, first of all, just the punctuation and the capitalization in a tweet, it shouldn't look like a ransom note. That's what she gives us (laughs) constantly. So I've always known, like, social media was going to be a somewhat dicey venue for her. But but, but let me just say, I differ from most people in that when something is, like, kind of cringe-inducing on social media, I simply cannot sit through it. Like, I couldn't mm. sit through the Imagine video. Like, I had to turn it off. I watched it 20 times. See, to see, let I, the hate fester in me. <laughs> like, even, like, Gal Gadot's nervous smile, that alone I couldn't sit through. Mm-hmm. Let alone Madonna in a bathtub. What, I'm going to say talking backwards. Like, what is occurring <laughs> in this video? Speaking, like, in literally, literally giving us the screw tape letters from her yeah. bathtub. <laughs> She had the video where she did, um, she talked about wanting to get fried fish and sort of sang it to the tune of Vogue, except it didn't even really sound like singing. It was just, it didn't even approach making sense. I hated it. I hated it. 
Uh, the the genre of celebrity just losing it in their home is is that is wild, but maybe none more wilder than Ellen DeGeneres constantly on her couch with her phone. It's like, oh, I'm so bored. What am I supposed to do? Since you live on an estate, go kill Porsche. Have, like, Porsche is Porsche is riding horses. I think you're fine. Yeah, go climb the mountain in your backyard. Go buy overalls. I don't know. Go dance, Ellen. Like Lewis, what's your keep it? Um, mine is also um, celeb related, and I'm not going to call it painful for me, but still awkward in a way that I feel should be addressed. So, Kirstie Alley, who is, I think, one of my favorite TV actors ever. Just like her brand of of being like. <sighs> blowsy and like eyelids drooping and like withering and super cynical uh, when she played Rebecca on Shears. Very classic. I don't feel like we have a second one of her. Um, so I want to cherish that sitcom legacy and, and many of her movies I've enjoyed too. Rebel Wilson. Oh, okay. That's enough. <laughs> Can we eject you out a window? Okay. Um, uh, she is kind of an unpredictable tweeter. She's weird because she reaches out to a lot of comics and seems really nice. But then, of course, there's the Scientology angle. And then there's the alleged Republican angle. But anyway, alleged. <laughs> she uh, she said in a tweet the other day, Dear Mr. President, real Donald Trump, I want to thank you for your recent decorum, sincerity, and care towards us. You're taking charge and leading in a manner needed and wanted for this country. I highly commend you for your boundless energy and willingness to solve problems. Thank you. Let's talk about boundless energy first. <laughs> Meaning the fuck what? He looks like he's going to tip over and like crack. Nothing's boundless about that. Um, secondly, what is she responding to? Every time he speaks, he th- this is like an old tweet that went around, but it's the feeling of somebody who didn't prepare for an oral assignment. Just completely <laughs> making things up off the top of his head. It's... And people, I guess, are sort of endeared by that, I'll, I'll call it extemporaneous style of speaking. But what it really is, is terror. I mean, it's just somebody who doesn't care to get real information out into the public to help people, wasting our time by either reading a teleprompter or standing at a mic blathering. So to pretend that at all he has achieved, I'm sorry, the word decorum came up in that tweet, is <laughs> astounding. And that he ever even approaches sense is wild. So I'm deeply, deeply upset at Kirstie Alley at the moment. Kathy DeJimney, the lone hero from Veronica's Closet, I guess. That is exactly right. And thank God for her arc on Veep, too. And by the way, <laughs> Kathy DeJimney, ace pyramid player. If you're looking for great pyramid players, Kathy DeJimney, number one. <laughs> uh, my keep it this week is also celeb related, and it also relates to the coronavirus. Here we go. I don't know if you all knew this week, but um, Niall DeMarco uh, believes he contracted COVID-19. However, um, he tweeted, he's been really sick uh, all the past week, but he's now on the mend, and it's very possible he contracted coronavirus, and he had the access to get tested, but he didn't want to because there was a shortage of testing um, available to other people and he sort of doesn't like the fact that we only know about famous people and people who have the means to get tested um, when there are probably so many other cases in the U.S. right now um, and we won't find out because those people don't have access to tests. Uh, Anyway, he tweeted this out. It was was a lovely tweet and then someone responded to him (laughs) Infect me, OMG. 
Now more than ever, does the, Jesus need to intervene? <laughs> the gays have lost their minds in quarantine, and I I need it to stop. <laughs> I saw somebody, uh, Boozy, little Boozy, posted a video, and someone, and he was like, he saw a hot woman, and he was like, "Quarantine me, baby, quarantine me." I'm like, "You guys are sick. You right. guys are literally sick." Stay home. <laughs> there is a difference. There's a difference in asking Kate Blanchett to step on your neck and yes. asking Niall DeMarco to infect you oh with the coronavirus. Overall, That's a step too far. Just all of our thirst tweets have gotten out of hand. Like spit in my mouth. Like all this disgusting, vile stuff. The gays need to have the bird app revoked. Like they shouldn't be on <laughs> it at all. Have you seen recently on Instagram a couple of like super like actual nudity in posts that hasn't been taken down immediately. I'm wondering if people are like sitting, is there like an Instagram HQ operating? I wonder what's going on over there. (laughs) I think that everyone has reached peak horny. You have to. Yeah. They're horny on main. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) Oh no. Well, that's our show. We'll be back next week doing this directly from our homes again. Get ready. (laughs) Thank you so much to Jane Fonda for joining us and to Jeremy O'Harris. We'll see you next week. Keep It is a product of Crooked Media. Caroline Rustin is our producer. It's Caroline like the princess. The one you don't care about. Our editor is Bill Lance and Kyle Seglin is our sound engineer. Thanks to our digital team, Elijah Cohn and Nadine Melkonian for filming and editing our video content every week. Tillamook Chocolate Collection Ice Cream is a total chocolate game changer. We start with unbelievably creamy dark chocolate ice cream. Then we add different chocolate treats like chocolate cookies, chocolate cake, or chocolate brownies to make four decadent chocolate flavors. Because sometimes the thing that pairs best with chocolate (laughs) is more chocolate. Tillamook Chocolate Collection Ice Cream. Extraordinary Dairy.